0: Welcome to the Strategy and Security Podcast, brought to you by the University of Glasgow's Strategy and Security Society. In each episode, we bring direct to you some expert insight into the fields of strategy, security, and international relations. Hi, welcome everyone, and thanks for joining us this evening. Our guest speaker for this event is Emma Whitaker, who is Peace and Conflict Advisor with the Technical Support Unit at Mercy Corps, and she specialises in climate security. In the past, she's also worked with Mercy Corps as governance and land access manager and as food security and stabilization program director in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and she has also been conflict and humanitarian advocacy advisor for Save the Children. Uh, This event is going to consist of Emma's presentation and then I will kick off the Q&A section with a couple of questions about Emma's experience within the international development sector and then I'll, I'll open up to you guys. Uh, additionally, if you like the sound of Mercy Corps' work and you want to help support them, um, I'll put a link in the chat so that you can donate. So now I'll hand over to Emma.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Eliya. Can everybody hear me okay and see me okay? Great, thanks. Um, I realize you probably know who I am because it says Peace and Governance as ah, my screen name and I don't really know how to change that. But yeah, it's me, Emma. Um, So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here today um, to talk to you guys a little bit about Mercy Corps' work and then um, talk a little bit about sort of my career trajectory um, and any questions you guys might have. So, um, as Elia said, I work at Mercy Corps, which is a um, NGO, a non-governmental organization that was um, founded in the U.S., but now we have offices across Um, Europe, and I'm actually based in London, Um, but we also have offices, sort of what we call operational offices, in more than 40 countries around the world. Um, So Mercy Corps, um, so if you want to go to the next slide, actually, who is Mercy Corps? Um, So we are an organization organization that works to um, alleviate suffering, poverty, and oppression by helping people build secure, productive, and just communities. So we spend about $500 500 or $450 million a year um, operationalizing programs around the world in many different themes, typically in fragile um, and conflict affected contexts. So we are a multidisciplinary organization that works on development, humanitarian, and peacebuilding programming all at once. And we work across a range of sectors, including economic development, food security, livelihoods, governance, um, things like agriculture, and as well as environmental management. And we work on a of wide range of outcomes that look at sort of poverty alleviation, um, economic development, again food security, um, environmental sustainability, and above all, sort of peace. Um, And that's obviously sort of what I work in quite closely. If you want to go to the next slide, um, talks a little bit about where we work. So as I mentioned, we have about 40 or 41 um, countries around the world in which we work. And we have around 5,000 staff members. And um, I think it's something like 87 or 88% of our staff actually work in the countries um, that they're from. So we hire a lot of local staff and we try really hard to hire staff um, from those those contacts. Um, And as I said before, we work in some of the most sort of complex and fragile environments around the world, including 17 of the 20 countries ranked lowest on the um, Global Peace Index in sort of 2018 and 2019. Um, So, if you go to the next slide, um, as I, yeah, awesome, thanks. Um, So, I work in peace and conflict, but um, at Mercy Corps, it's not just sort of technical or programmatic people that work to address peace and conflict. It's a really sort of a whole of agency approach. So, um, this graph just sort of shows you all the different units that we have that work on peace and conflict. So, we have everything from policy and advocacy. So, those are our colleagues who work to address sort of influence and policy dynamics and changes with donors or um, international governments to set sort of different laws and different policies um, for our work or policies you know in the countries where we our work is relevant. We also have a, um, a large focus on research and learning so that's everything from sort of capturing ev- evidence of what we do in terms of programs or um, learning in different thematic areas about how to sort of arrive at the most effective solutions and, and really put you know, community well-being at the the forefront of everything we do, and then the last sort of area in that um, we work, or the last sort of unit um, that we have to address um, peace and, and conflict dynamics, is what we call the technical support unit. And so that's the team that I work on, and in that team um, we really work on sort of program excellence and everything from designing programs, conceiving of ideas of how to build programs, through implementation. And obviously we work sort of with the research and policy teams to be able to do their work as well. Um, So if you go to the next slide, I guess we can scale back just a second to talk about sort of why it is that this is important. Um, And I'm sure sort of given this group, you all have a good understanding of why these sort of dynamics are key and, and the the um, negative implications of, of conflict and active um, conflict or, or fragility, um, and so some of these stats might be a little bit old, but I think um, it's something like you know 1.5 billion people are currently living in fragile or conflict or violent affected states. Um, I think now is the highest number of internally displaced or or um, internationally displaced people the world has ever seen, and that's something of upwards of sort of 82 million, which is the highest since you know World War II increasing um, poverty rates, um, as we've, you know, really seen in the last year, um, really increasing inequality, um, social I- inequality, sort of horizontal and vertical inequality. And um, if we're looking at things like the cost, sort of the impacts of a violent conflict, um, you know, as a very sort of top level sort of way to understand it, it's that we can think of, you know, the cost of a civil war is equivalent to, you know, 30 or some odd 30, Years of GDP growth for a country, so it can have not only sort of impacts on, on the day-to-day lives of people and, and things like injuries and deaths, but also um, quite a massive economic impact that can affect, you know, people who are even outside of a, a zone of a conflict in a country or, or even for a region. Um, so, if you go to the next slide, um, I'll talk just a little bit more about the team that I actually sit on, which is called our technical support unit. So we sit in what's called the sort of programs team. So there's an entire unit of people who are, um, whose work is to help sort of deliver design um, and oversee programming that happens in the sort of 40 plus countries that we work in. Um, And so my team really focuses on how to sort of put the most effective solutions um, into our programs and and ensure that we're conceiving of really effective like harmonies of different approaches to get to sort of an end goal of, you know, increasing um, social cohesion or um, reducing conflict or sometimes and most often it's a combined set of um, outcomes that we're looking for. So things like improved economic um, opportunity, reduced conflict, um, increased sort of, um, uh, let's say, sustainability of natural resources, a whole sort of range of things. And so my team is considered successful when we are able to help our field teams um, have the tools that they need to implement programs. Um, It's also considered successful when we can consistently sort of demonstrate success in our programs. Um, As I'm sure, you know, some of you know, it's, it's not as easy as saying, okay, this is the plan and executing it in a world, you know, that's perfect without variables. And so where we can show, you know, the ways that our approaches are working and results um, in in communities' lives, um, that's a a way to continue sort of our work. Um, And that's around sort of evidence building and and strong research. Um, So if you go to the next slide, um, I'll just talk to you very briefly about sort of the four ways in which my team works. So I sit personally on the peace and conflict team Um, But we actually work across sort of 11 sectors in the TSU. And so we have teams who work on sort of the environment, teams who work on agriculture, teams who work on youth employment, um, teams who work on gender, sort of all sorts of different critical themes. Um, And then in each one of those teams, we work on sort of four different things. The first in this little quadrant you can see is, um, the top left is the strategic support. So supporting um, our various country offices, you know, ensure they're effectively and and um, considerably designing and implementing programs. Um, so, as it says here, that's everything from helping our various countries, you know, design strategies to, um, to arrive at our sort of our, our organization's goals. Um, and write sort of technical briefs and trends. Um, and then things like program design and implementation. So doing this sort of support for um, recruitment for, you know, staff that's being hired on a program to um, how to help a program team start up a program or how to close a program. And um, the third area is knowledge and capacity. So that's focusing on how to help um, ensure our teammates in different country offices sort of have the confidence and the necessary skill sets um, to deliver good programming. So. For example, one of the one of the trainings that my team delivers quite a bit is what we call interest-based negotiation. And that's really about how we can sort of help communities um, effectively negotiate for peaceful solutions to problems. Um, and the last is technical influence. And so that lines up with what I was saying earlier about like our policy goals um, and the, the policy team that we have. So that's using evidence from our programming um, to, you know, speak in conferences or to um, create briefs for governments to really influence um, policy sort of objectives for for the global community. Um, so if you want to go to the next slide, just talking a little bit about my team's sort of portfolio. So what our goal is in the Peace and Conflict team, and so I'm um, one of three sort of advisors on um, this team. So I sit in London, I have a colleague in Geneva, and then a colleague in the US as well. Um, And so our sort of goal in in supporting programs um, and and the organization more globally is to prevent and reduce violent conflict and um, lay the foundations of peace by promoting social cohesion, um, supporting peaceful rev- resolutions of conflict and addressing the um, underlying drivers of conflict or what we can call it the sort of root causes of conflict. Um, so at any given moment, we have probably you know, 40 to 45 different programs around the world and those can range in size from anything from you know, a value of 2 million to 40 million. Um, it, it depends on the donor, the theme and um, really the need um, in a given context. Um, and so I think right now we've got about 43 programs in 21 countries um, for a value of over $194 million. And that, that, that budget really means you know, we have a donor that says, here's X amount of money to implement the program. Um, and you know we have all sorts of budgeting rules about what percent of that budget needs to be directly spent on beneficiaries or program participants, different amounts for staffing, different amounts for sort of buying all the logistical support needs like cars and you know radios and that sorts of things. So it, it can seem like a huge amount of money, um, but it's important to think about all the aspects that would go into it as well. Um, I've also just listed out a, a couple of types of conflict that we typically sort of work um, in and around and, and in addressing. So we have everything from intercommunal conflict um, to addressing violent extremism, um, political and electoral violence, Um, conflicts around sort of climate change and then also natural resource management and also um, urban violence. And as you can imagine, depending on the country, the time, um, those conflict dynamics will be shifting and changing. Um, And so lastly, just talking about some of the significant donors that we have. Um, So USAID is one of the major donors that uh, Mercy Corps has, different European governments, um, the United Kingdom, also uh, multilateral organizations like the UN, um, the EU, and a little bit of um, Canadian funding as well. So um, just to get a bit more into the sort of technical bits, and I won't give you guys too much jargon, but um, feel free to follow up with, with, um, you know, questions in the Q and A if this is an area of interest, but basically just to talk about the way that we sort of conceptualize and understand conflict. And so Mercy Corps, really focuses on the understanding that, you know, conflict is not a singular event. It's not a one-off impact or or there's not a one-off cause that creates conflict, but really the combination of many, many external factors um, that together work and influence and and create conflict and compound, you know, other existing trends. So when we work in our programming, um, the first sort of starting point is doing something like an analysis to say, Okay, well, what are the goals we want to achieve, you know, what are the different conflict dynamics, and then what are all the different systems variables that go into um, creating and, and you know, protracting and continuing this conflict. So if you look at this example, I think we have something like, you know, forced displacement um, impacts livelihood opportunities, which impacts food security, which impacts, um, you know, poor physical health and and it can all be sort of traced back and influenced by all the various dynamics in a in a sort of what we call systems map um so that's just a little bit about how we sort of start really in in untangling um dynamics of conflict um, so if you go to the next slide this is just sort of an overview of where we are actually in sort of mid 2020 to tw- 2021 we're really seeing um you know, dynamics of conflict, the landscape of risk is changing quite a bit. Um, and so many of the factors that we were seeing that reduce conflict at the beginning of the 21st century are actually changing dramatically and for the worse. And so, as you can you know imagine by reading the slide, a lot of these dynamics were not as critical, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago as they are now. Um, and I think a really interesting example of that is the social aspects and, and things like the digitization of, soci- of society which um, has led to things like um, a huge you know, disinformation and misinformation um, issue. And, and I'm sure many of you are aware of that around COVID um, and all the misinformation, and disinformation that was around sort of the disease itself and then how to also address the pandemic. So a couple of the sort of key um, threats and risks that we're looking at across the globe are, you know, they can fit into a couple of different spheres. So the first is sort of economic, and that's things like rising in inequality and emerging depression because of spending related to COVID-19, um, you can see political issues, um, a, a rise in authoritarianism, um, which also you know, is related to COVID or we saw brought about more clearly by COVID but not of course exclusively. And then um, the social aspects, like I mentioned, um, digitization, growing populations, increased, um, increased numbers of displaced populations Um, And then that's all, these threats are also in a backdrop of um, massive climate change um, and and COVID-19 as well. So all this to say is that, yeah, the nature of uh, conflict is changing and so we have to keep um, up with the understanding and the the analysis of, of, you know, conflict dynamics to be able to effectively address them. And this sort of goes back to the previous slide in thinking about all the different dynamics that feed into an understanding of how to address conflict really. Um, so you're probably thinking, okay, well, how do you actually uh, resolve anything then since it's also complicated? Um, so if you go to the next slide, it just talks about a couple of the key sort of ways in which Mercy Corps approaches um, addressing conflict and violence. And so we have four sort of tenants that we look at. And these change over the course of, you know, every couple of years as are what are our key sort of strategies to improving um, peace and, and sustainability of, of um, peaceful societies. And so one of the sort of foundational areas, I would say, is good governance. We look at good governance, effective institutions, which means sort of transparent and um, reliable and um, engaged government and and, and governance um, as a peace multiplier, meaning that it can have sort of ripple effects um, that can be increasingly positive if, if you have good governance. The second area is really focusing on local locally led solutions um, to peace and conflict programming. So in knowing and sort of acknowledging that the most effective solutions come from communities themselves because they understand the issues, they understand the histories, they understand the legacies and sort of the dynamics in communities um, of power, of money, um, of that sort of thing. So really knowing that, you know, while my role is a peace and conflict sort of advisor, you know, I'm not always gonna be best placed to have solutions, especially compared to, you know, a community in Mali where we're trying to design a program that I I can bring a certain level of expertise and um, ideas from other contexts, but often we have to work very closely with um, communities themselves to find solutions. So the third area is um, around resilience. Um, Resilience is a sort of catch-all term that I think a lot of people love to use. Um, But for us, it really means um, ensuring that communities have the sort of skills and tools um, to be able to withstand different types of shocks and stresses. So, you know, if there is a natural disaster, are they able to um, overcome that sort of shock to their livelihoods or if there is an outbreak of violence, you know, do they have the savings mechanisms to be able to overcome um, any any of that insecurity and the sort of negative impacts around that. And then the last bit is, is what we talked about sort of previously is about making sure we are analyzing and sort of understanding the ways in which social dynamics are changing and creating, um, you know, new grievances or new trends um, in conflict or of social dynamics that that could result in conflict or violence. Um, so I will just go, I've just got a couple more slides and um, if you go to the next one, this is sort of our theory of change and it's a little bit hard to see probably. Um, I'm happy to share all these slides with everybody after if it's useful. This is just sort of talking about um, how we hope to sort of get to this, this um, world where we have more secure, productive, and just communities. And so if you look at the center sort of triangle, um, that's our goal of really reducing and preventing violent conflict and advancing sustainable peace. And then the, um, I think, it, uh, perfect. Oh, thank you for zooming in. Um, and so then the three areas around it are sort of, let's say like roadmaps for getting there. And it's a combination of um, I'm working at the community level, the societal level, and the individual level, and and it's our understanding and based on our experiences, you really need to work to address the dynamics at each one of those levels to arrive at a more sort of whole of society, um, you know, improved peace, peace and and um, sort of. I, Kind of think more peaceful outcomes for for a whole of society um, and it's not just at the societal level but you really need to work on individual levels well and so one thing we're actually starting to work a lot more on um, the individual level are things like trauma healing which is helping communities to address sort of the legacies of violence um, in in their societies and that's we're finding um a significant factor that can um, impact sort of social and societal level um, dynamics and then around the outside or sort of the in the green side are the sort of um, the ways in which we hope to work. So we as a team and as an organization, um, you know, wanna prioritize equity and inclusion, local ownership, as I mentioned before, and then evidence and continued learning as well. And then in the blue um, sort of arrow on the other side, it's a couple of our key approaches um, and areas of work like thematically to get there. And so we have things like advancing peace and complex crises, focusing on the intersection of peace and technology. And so that's really the piece around sort of misinformation I was mentioning and how social media can have an impact on conflict and create sort of real world harms. Um, things like conflict sensitivity, which is sort of a you know baseline for us that has to be included in, in all things. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about um, climate and conflict actually after this. Um, if we go to the next slide. So as I mentioned, there's a couple of different themes that we work in. One of them is what we call um, climate and conflict, or climate climate security. And so, this is an area that I um, I myself sort of lead Mercy Corps work on, and this <clears throat> this is a focus of understanding um, how is or can climate change, the impacts of climate change, um, interact with you know existing dynamics to create conflict or compound existing conflicts. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, So this is a new theme, newish theme for Mercy Corps that we started working on probably quite concretely about two years ago. Um, But we found that this was based on about 10 years of experience of of working on sort of questions of environment and conflict and resources and conflict. Um, And it's evolved now to a more sort of comprehensive understanding around what we call um, climate and conflict. And so this is just sort of, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but what you see on your screen, is basically how we got to um, the point of of having an approach around climate and t- conflict, and that was really looking at past um, programming over the last sort of 10 years, and saying like, what are the issues we're seeing? What are the responses we're seeing? You know, what commonalities are there across all of our different contexts, and what what you know could we now be in a position to say about climate and conflict and, and about you know how they interact or how to address them? Um, so if you go into the next slide, here's a very probably overwhelming and hopefully confusing <laughs> graph, um, and basically this is how we understand climate and conflict to, to interact. And so I I won't go into too much detail, but um, have a lot of resources that I can share after if this is of particular interest to anybody. But essentially, this um, graph, you know highlights for us based on all of our experience around the world, all the ways that climate change and conflict can, can interact. And so what we're really looking at is how can macro trends, so things like climate change itself, different population growth or environmental degradation, interact with, you know, factors creating fragility such as socioeconomic development, um, state capabilities. So that's things like governance, intergroup inequality and a recent history of violence as well as um, you know, how can all these factors interact with climate stresses? So floods or droughts or changing rainfall patterns or rising temperatures. Um, in addition to ad- additional like shocks and stresses that we would talk about like livelihood insecurity or rising food prices. So essentially we, we're looking at how do all these very seemingly you know, distinct um, factors integrate to create conflict. And so, this um, theme is quite sort of novel in, in the international development space. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of academic research and a lot of policy conversations around it. And it, it's really picked up in the last year. And um, so Mercy Corps is now in a phase where we're having a lot of pilot programming to explore sort of what this connection looks like and then to, um, to suggest ways of addressing um, of addressing the phenomenon. But as you can see by this graph, it's quite complex. And so we we as, as an NGO and a couple other sort of academic organizations have some ideas about what this relationship looks like, but we can say with certainty that it's not sort of linear. It's not that X causes Y. And so it's a bit of a trial and error in trying to figure out sort of how to address this because you know we know that the, the realities of climate change will become more apparent and worse. Um, in countries that have the least capability to sort of absorb um, the impacts of climate change. And so, and and that's particularly so in contexts of fragility, sorry, that are in fragility that already have sort of ongoing violence. So if you go to the next slide, it's just a little bit about sort of the four key pathways that Mercy Corps has identified through which climate change can cause conflict. So um, the first is through extreme weathers, disasters and displacement. The second is through um, natural resource uh, based livelihood insecurity. So, that's really around um, if you are dependent on natural resources for your livelihood, um, you know, as a farmer or as a pastoralist or as a fisherman in, in this image, um, and the sort of availability of resources or the um, occurrence of rainfall is changing, your livelihood is going to be under threat. And so, what are the potential impacts um, to sort of social cohesion and conflict that could um, result because of that sort of scarcity of livelihoods? Um, the third is around food insecurity and price volatility. So again, using the example of sort of changing rainfall patterns, if um, you know, there's a severe or prolonged drought and food price go food prices go up, um, people have a harder time buying food, you know, people can't earn a living. Um, in, in traditional mechanisms, you know, is that going to impact conflict? Is that going to um, create conflict? And, and in our, um, you know, in our programming past, we've seen that yes, in fact, can. And then the last one is around changing um, transboundary water flows. So typically, we haven't seen examples of this across international borders. In fact, it's actually been a, um, a reason for cooperation. But um, when it comes to sort of super localized or intra intra sort of boundary, um, like changing dynamics, it can cause um, conflict and tension. Um, But, you know, the good news is, is that these dynamics can also be, um, create sort of common ground for peace building. Um, So how can communities that rely on similar shared resources actually come to sort of um, commonalities to to you know mutually benefit and protect uh, a natural resource. Um, so if you go into the next slide, it's just a really quick picture um, around conflict trends that you'll see in Uganda. And so these are the first Im- the first set of um, images. Figure one is um, is data from the Lord Resistance Army in Uganda from I think the, the late um, 1990s. Oh sorry, yeah, starting in the late 1990s. Um, and this just sort of shows that, you know, in the late 1990s, the the, co- the incidents of conflict were recorded to be pretty c- closely sort of kept within the borders of Uganda. But then in the, t- the 2000s and up to 2010, it it, it spreads out quite a lit quite a bit more across to the um, borders of South Sudan and the DRC as well. And so if you look at the second image, um, you know we're looking we add in here the variable of climate change and and um, Uh, sort of temperature and climate variability. And actually we can see that in the areas that have um, the highest sort of um, change, um, the the sort of the lowest areas of climate resilience, um, that is also where the conflict sort of is spread to, um, that that we saw spread that we didn't really understand why they're spreading in the figure one, we can see a relationship to the climate variability in the second graph. so obviously, you know, that has to be taken in context, but um, it's it's you know adding to the growing evidence base around climate change and conflict. Um, and then I guess I'll just end lastly with um, a brief case study on the next slide um, from Uganda, where we have um, for a few years been implementing a program in the northern region called Karamoja. Um, so this map on the right side shows sort of Karamoja is the top. Corner of Uganda, and then um, in yellow and green, as the sort of localities within um, Uganda, or sorry, in Karamoja. Um, so, Karamoja is a context that had been in conflict um, for, for many years, and there was a huge rise of you know, weaponry available to communities in Karamoja um, after the fall of a, of a government official and a government system, really. That supplied lots of weapons from sort of the national army to this community Um, and essentially it's a community of pastoralists and um, sort of like cattle farmers and um, agriculture like sedentary agricultural communities and there was a lot of conflict before about you know cattle raiding and 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 sort of violent theft of, of agricultural products but the our program came into sort of into being um, around increased numbers of conflicts after sort of there was a demobilization process in 2008 that got rid of a lot of the arms there but the conflict didn't really subside and what we were seeing is that the increasing number of conflict was typically between sort of pastoralists and you know farmers Um, and what we were seeing was that there was basically competition over available resources. And the fact that the resources were changing due to climate change was increasing the rate and the sort of severity of conflict. Um, because I won't go into too much detail, but basically pastoralists need to sort of move their herds in different places. And obviously um, farmers need a very set space of land. And so as pastoralists had to go further and further afield to sort of feed and nourish their um, their past, their Um, you know, cattle, um, they were often going onto the land of farmers, um, and that was creating tensions between these two dynamics, between these two groups, sorry. Um, So in this program, we actually managed to bring, um, you know, many different sides of of that conflict together, you know, between pastoralists, between agriculture, um, agriculturists, farmers, and also between sort of different communities, uh, like in neighboring areas, to sort of look at what resources they were um, in need of and how to protect and improve the quality of those those resources in the face of climate change. So we looked at things like um, having joint sort of natural resource sharing agreements and um, the development of maps where um, pastoralists knew that they could use X and Y routes to to, feed their cattle um, and then to avoid conflict um, with farmers really. Um, and it's been a program that's been, you know, changing a few iterations and, and you know, reflecting on earlier what we were saying about keeping adapted to the conflict dynamics. You know, it, it's now looking at different sources of livelihoods and, and um, trying to really, um, yeah, support all the different community groups and using um, trauma healing as well, which has been an interesting addition to the program to address the legacies of the conflict from, you know, prior to 2008. Um, yeah. So I will leave it there. I think that's a lot of me talking. Um, Hopefully some bit of that was interesting for everybody. Um, Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll hand it back to you.
0: Amazing, thank you so much, Emma. That was so interesting and really enlightening. So I'll just start with our first question. So how did you get started in a career in international development?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, thanks. Um, Let's see, so I think I started by doing a, masters in um, international affairs with a focus on climate and security. I'm actually weirdly wearing my like univer- my undergraduate university's um, jacket today that I just found because it's very cold in London and so good fleece. I did my undergrad actually in um, international development in Canada and then I did a masters in international affairs um focusing on, yeah, um, on conflict um, and I actually did it in the United States um, New York City, which provided me an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of sort of NGOs and different organizations and civil society organizations that were sort of active in research. Um, And I actually was lucky enough to get a very much unpaid internship at the UN. Um, So I worked at the UN Office of Sexual, the Special Representative, the Secretary General's um, Office of Sexual Violence and Conflict. And so it was as unglamorous as internships, you know, come. And it's basically I I help sort of type notes and um, sit in on meetings. And um, yeah, I guess, really to sort of learn the way that the the UN office worked on that. And it allowed me to sort of write more documents and do some some research on um, areas that I was interested in. Um, And then after that, I, I knew I couldn't continue an unpaid internship for very long. And I know that's a that's a problem in our industry. And actually, I'm pretty happy to say that Mercy Corps doesn't have any unpaid internships, and they're all paid with stipends. So um, if you're looking, please, um, yeah, look at us. Um, but then after that, basically, my first my first real job in the field was with Mercy Corps. So I applied for an um, internship with Mercy Corps in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and it was focusing on sort of gender dynamics and I think the experience that I had focusing on sort of gender and sexual violence at the UN sort of gave me some credibility to then move into this role at the at, with Mercy Corps. Um, I think I'd known I'd always wanted an international career and working in sort of different countries and so when I went to DRC for um, what was supposed to be six months and I went there thinking that the job would look like this and the work would look like this and it was totally different I actually realized I didn't know much about what I was getting into at all um but I ended up loving it and um I ended up staying in the DRC for about three and a half years because it was an expanding office that you know where we're always sort of developing new programs and there's a lot of opportunity to grow and I think I had sort of demonstrated myself as someone who was really eager to learn and and put in the work and so Mercy Course of saw that and helped me you know, move and move around to different um, themes. And so actually when I joined Mercy Corps in the DRC, it was in a more of a humanitarian um, sort of programming. But I know um, because Mercy Corps had experience in peace and conflict, um, it wasn't really something that we were doing in the DRC office. And so I helped actually build out the peace and conflict programming sort of portfolio in the DRC. And I think um, kind of worked myself into a job there. Um, Yeah. I don't know if that's a good answer, but there you go. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And do you have any tips or advice for someone who's looking to have a career in this field?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I would say network as much as you can, um, to, to talk to people, to really like find out a bit of their experience. I think I was very unshameful when I first started about cold emailing people and saying, Hey, you do something that's kind of looks like something I might want to do. You know, would you be free for a coffee or a Skype call? I think the benefit is sort of, you know, everything being so digital right now is that you be able to connect with people who aren't even in your, um, you know, your city or your town. And and I think that that's quite a good opportunity But right now, but yeah, um, reach out to many people as you can like get, um, get as much like sort of diverse experience as you can. Cause I think if you, yeah, you might think you want to do sort of X, but then you, you try it out and you say, actually, this isn't that interesting. And I think, yeah, be, be humble about, needing to learn but confident that you know you bring a unique set of experience and skills as well and so you deserve a sort of place at the table as much as anybody else yeah
0: thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new if you want to hear more from the strategy and security society you can find us on our social media links which are posted in the show notes